Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we have Pierre Richard. He is the VP of Research at Riot and a longtime Bitcoin advocate, a Bitcoin industry participant, and a Bitcoin educator. Pierre, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Looking forward to talking. So, Pierre, you and I go way back. You were actually the first person in Bitcoin that read my work and read my idea about the Lightning Network interest rates. And uh, so I just wanted to acknowledge that and uh, send my appreciation your way for helping me get started in this industry and really finding a voice. Uh, talk to us about the Lightning Network. What What excitement that you felt when you read my work back then how is that how is that accelerated just overall the energy around lightning network and the adoption what are you seeing and how excited are you about the state of lightning network today yeah sure thing so uh your work definitely did increase my excitement for lightning and i'll rewind all the way back to when the lightning white paper came out in 2014 um I, I skimmed through it and I was working at BitPay, which is a uh, Bitcoin payment processor um, based out of Atlanta. And um, I was actually very skeptical uh, when I read the white paper about Lightning. It seemed to me that it would be just too complicated uh, and that on-chain works great. And so um, I kind of uh, ignored it uh, until it launched on Mainnet in 2018. And um, Chain Code Labs announced that they were doing a residency, a lightning residency, basically a one-week intensive program to uh, help developers on board onto Lightning. And I'd always had a lot of respect for the folks at Chain Code Labs, and so um, their endorsement of uh, the Lightning protocol seemed to me like a signal that maybe I was wrong in my initial judgment. Um, so to to uh, prepare my application for that residency, I started reading the bolts. That these are basically protocol specification documents that have been drafted to describe how the Lightning Network functions on a technical level. Um, and reading through those, that's when it really clicked for me that while Lightning is complicated, it is possible to abstract away from the complexity and to provide a interface for developers to build on top of Lightning without the developers having to worry about how the nitty gritty under the hood works. And, you know, it's just like with a car. Um, most people who drive cars do not understand how an internal combustion engine works or uh, in the case of EVs, you know, how an electric motor works. So um, that's when it clicked for me. And uh, the first thing I built for, and uh, as part of the residency, you build a kind of a project um, to familiarize yourself with the Lightning Network as a developer. I built an Excel plugin that allowed you to, and still allows you for that matter, to connect to your Lightning node and to get all of the data into the familiar world of a spreadsheet, which most business to, most business users are. Um, you know, most comfortable with. So um, that was a lot of fun to build in C Sharp. But what I realized on Windows was that it's actually really hard to launch a Lightning node. 
uh, and to uh, connect it to your Bitcoin node. So that's what got me started on my project after that, which was the node launcher. It's a cross-platform graphical user interface for um, essentially not having to get in the command line or configuration files. It does everything for you. And then you can have a desktop um, on, on Mac OS or Linux or Windows uh, node that then your spreadsheet can connect to. So um, yeah, b building on Lightning as a developer uh, is really what, what further kind of increased my excitement about it was that not only does this solve a clear problem for Bitcoin, which is um, often highlighted about how slow Bitcoin is on chain. Um, in order to get transaction finality, it's generally recommended you wait for one to three confirmations, which is 10 to 30 minutes on average. Um, but that's only an average. It can really be significantly longer than that. Um, and the other uh, ch challenge on chain is that transaction fees are charged based on the amount of data that you're consuming. Um, so you could have a Bitcoin transaction that is two inputs and two outputs and is consuming very little data, but is moving billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. Um, in which case, you know, paying a $1 transaction fee is fine. But if that same amount of data is only moving $10 worth of Bitcoin, uh, then a $1 transaction fee is a 10% fee, right? If we look at the value being moved, and that's not fine. Uh, so um, what Lightning allows you to do is uh, that the your payments, the routing fees on Lightning are charged based on the value that you're sending rather than the amount of data that you're consuming. And then the way that you onboard onto Lightning is just through one Bitcoin transaction. But when you open that channel using a Bitcoin transaction, after that, uh, you can actually send and receive a lot of payments over that channel and amortize the fixed cost of setting up the channel um, over years of usage. Um, so the you know the, lightning solving these problems for what i would call like medium of exchange or small value payments uh was really appealing to me um and then just how cool the technology is is also a, a factor there where it's just fun to work with talk to us about riot how did you end up there why are you at a bitcoin miner with your background in accounting and software development yeah, so um, I met the Riot team uh, back in 2018 uh, in, in New York at a conference. Um, and I, I think that we, we connected a lot on Bitcoin's importance, but also uh, the value of mining in the United States. Um, and with leadership that understands what Bitcoin's value proposition is, uh, and the direction the protocol is going in. Because at the time, uh, the majority of Bitcoin hash rate was in China. And there seemed to be a disconnect between uh, what the Chinese mining companies thought of as Bitcoin and the direction it was going in. 
uh, and kind of what the computer science allowed for. So that's initially what caused kind of the uh, the block size wars in 2017 uh, and uh, the acrimony and friction there between miners and the Bitcoin community. So um, Riot really wanted to not only bring Bitcoin mining to the United States, uh, but also bring Bitcoin mining into alignment with the open source ethos of decentralized governance of Bitcoin, rather than trying to um, kind of uh, do what the Chinese miners had done uh, with their approach to uh, signaling for upgrades and whatnot. So um, we had a lot of common ground there. Uh, I joined the advisory board for Riot. Um, I was on the advisory board for three years. Uh, providing input on the strategic direction of the company. Um, and then last year, uh, we I met again with Riot's management at uh, Bitcoin Miami uh, 2022. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about Bitcoin education. And my previous role was a product manager at Kraken. And I'd say the majority of that role was really about education. Um there is still a massive gap between what people think Bitcoin is and what Bitcoin actually is, uh, even or perhaps especially within the crypto industry. Uh, there are fundamental misunderstandings about Bitcoin. Um, so uh, I spent a significant amount of time at Kraken uh, kind of providing a lot of one on one and, and group education on um, Bitcoin software engineering fundamentals. Uh, and that's also true within uh, the mining industry, and especially with regards to policy. So there's a lot of misunderstanding within public policy circles about what Bitcoin mining is. Um, some folks even like they 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 take the analogy of mining too seriously, and they think that there's literal mineral extraction going on. Uh, so. There's just a lot of misinformation that uh, has to be cleared up, and so that that was kind of the 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 motivating factor for me to to join the riot team was helping advance education from local communities, employees, the executive team, policymakers, um, just lots of different stakeholders who are and they want to learn more about Bitcoin. The challenge they have is finding resources that are reliable. Uh, there's lots of false information on the internet about Bitcoin uh, and being able to sort out uh, what is actually substantiated by the underlying software uh, versus what's just kind of memes or narratives that um, have emerged that aren't really going to endure. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, been been my role at Riot uh, over the past six months and uh, enjoying it a lot. And with respect to Riot, I see there's a there's a degree of leadership here. Riot has a spectacular new facility in Texas that I use in presentations to show where the Bitcoin mining industry is going in Texas in the United States and some of the, the promising prospects that are there. So can you talk to us about Riot, Riot's leadership in Bitcoin mining and what is Riot thinking about in terms of strategy over the next few years? Yeah, so um, I, I think that Riot's taken a very um, methodical approach to 
the Bitcoin mining industry and and our presence in it. Um, one, starting with risk management, um, it's no secret that Bitcoin is volatile. In fact, that's one of the number one criticisms of Bitcoin that we hear is that it's very volatile. Um, and it's, you know, it's 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 just it's it's part of Bitcoin's nature because adoption happens in waves. Uh, humans are social animals. We have this mass herd psychology. We all FOMO into Bitcoin at the same time. Um, and on so that's on the demand side. And then on the supply side, there's no uh, central bank with a discretionary mon monetary policy that is expanding the balance sheet to uh, accommodate for increased demand, right? So um, the uh, fact that Bitcoin has a fixed supply means that the supply can't really... Um, adjust to increases in demand, all of the adjustment flows into the exchange rate, Bitcoin's price. Um, and that causes tremendous volatility. Now, you can think of Bitcoin mining as a derivative on top of Bitcoin's exchange rate, meaning that because uh, Bitcoin mining is about future Bitcoin cash flows um, and let's just say future Bitcoin flows, uh, we'll move the word cash from there to avoid confusion, um, that, uh, you know, when you're doing the the valuation for a mining rig or for a mining company, um, you have to be thinking about, well, what's going to be the Bitcoin price in the future? And that's what makes Bitcoin mining essentially a derivative on top of the exchange rate, right? Um, so that makes Bitcoin mining even more volatile than spot Bitcoin. Um, all else equal. So uh, Riot's CEO, Jason Less, his background is that he's a former professional poker player. And I think that's really reflected in the way he thinks about risk. Um, and he he does think about it very quantitatively. Uh, and um, in a sense, uh, you could say conservatively, but I, I wouldn't call it conservative. I would just call it reasonable. Right. He, he looks at it very reasonably of uh, what are the different odds facing the company so that uh, we can navigate them in a way that creates value for shareholders and also helps build, uh, you know, a business uh, centered around Bitcoin. So that risk management takes a number of different forms. One is um, essentially, uh, you know, keeping the balance sheet clean uh, and not piling on leverage during the bull market uh, when everyone is euphoric. Um, two, uh, so, you know, that's kind of with regards to the capital structure. Two is with regards to um, looking at not only Bitcoin price risk, but on the other side, on the cost side, looking at the cost of electricity. Uh, so, uh, having a power strategy that is managing the electricity price risk uh, so that you're locking in electricity rates uh, at favorable times. Um, and then when electricity prices are going up, uh, essentially having an approach to the market where um, we decrease our electricity consumption and sell electricity back to the grid when prices are high. Um, so 
the other part of the strategy in terms of controlling costs is really around vertical integration. This is why Riot changed its name from Riot Blockchain to Riot Platforms. It's not because we decreased our conviction on Bitcoin at all. Um, rather, it's because we have an expansive view of what it takes to be competitive long term in the Bitcoin mining industry and that it requires vertical integration from being a real estate company. Right. So location, location, location. It matters where you build your Bitcoin mining facility, where you are on the grid, what jurisdiction you're in, um, that, that is going to create a path that uh, is going to determine a lot of your costs long term and a lot of your risks. So Riot has a facility in Rockdale uh, that is adjacent to a decommissioned Alcoa aluminum plant. And uh, the giant Sandow switch. Uh, so that is a strategically important position on the Texas electricity grid. Uh, we've also uh, started building a facility in Corsicana that is adjacent to a very large switch as well. And it's going to give us the capacity to build a one gigawatt facility. So um, finding locations that are ready to go uh you know shovel ready and um also on good positions within the grid that are strategically uh important or um you know are going to give you access to a lot of capacity that's important so it it starts the vertical integration in my mind starts with the real estate of if you're going to be mining on the grid now there are also there are different strategies right so there are other miners who decide to uh, mine behind the meter. And so they want to find real estate that's adjacent to power generation facilities that they own or are leasing or, you know, et cetera, or that um, are close to what is referred to as stranded energy. So um, places that are just not able to connect to the grid. Um, so there's kind of the whole spectrum of different approaches to it. Now, for Riot, where we want to have a, a a strategy that's focused on scale and building at scale, um, we we have to be on the grid and uh, we have to find positions on the grid that are amenable to at scale uh, data center, you know, or uh, Bitcoin mining facility, um, you know, locations. So that's one. Uh, two, construction. Riot builds its own facilities. So we are a construction company. Um, in addition to all the other activities we have going on, uh, we move dirt, uh, we pour foundation, uh, you know, we uh, build buildings, um, and we even within the buildings we build the racks, right? We build kind of t all the way to plugging in the Bitcoin miner, and we also own most of the, you know, we self mine, self host. Um, so that construction. Having that in-house is really important. One, because you want to have folks that are uh, aligned with the mission of mining Bitcoin. And so they're looking to build very efficiently um, and control costs and build with urgency. Uh, because, you know, as a Bitcoin mining company, we're operating on Bitcoin time, which is a block every 10 minutes. 
right? So every 10 minutes counts uh, in uh, our industry. And uh, it's a, a global um, hash rate market where, you know, we've got competition from around the world and there has to be urgency. Uh, but the other part of it, too, is building infrastructure that is optimized and specialized for Bitcoin mining, um, where, you know, we're, we want to, aside from periods where we're curtailing and selling electricity back to the grid, we want to be at 100% uh, of, uh, you know, consuming um, that electricity to convert it into hash rate to, uh, you know, earn Bitcoin. Um, so to do that, it it would not be economical to put mining rigs inside of a traditional data center. Uh, traditional data centers are optimized for different workloads. Um, so building our own data centers allows us to really focus on high-performance computing, Bitcoin mining. Um, the other part of it, too, is that these data centers require specialized electrical equipment. And uh, Riot acquired an electrical equipment manufacturer and designer, ESS Metron, uh, based out of Colorado, as part of our vertical integration strategy so that we have more control over our supply chain um, and also that uh, we can learn from them, they can learn from us, and we can uh, build the best uh, product for uh, Bitcoin mining purposes. Um, so uh, all of this to say that, uh, you know, in terms of building a Bitcoin mining company, Riot's approach has been to control risk and also control costs um, through this vert vertical integration approach. Uh, and I think that's what really makes Riot um, a, a unique player in the industry and uh, why I'm excited about our mission. And what type of relationship does Riot have with Texas governing bodies in its pursuit of either proper electricity arrangements, property, property taxes, um, zoning, and then of course, whether or not Bitcoin is legislated in a favorable fashion. Yes, yeah, so we're a member of the Texas Blockchain Council and they have done a great job of working uh, with the legislature, with ERCOT, um, essentially to uh, help explain what the value proposition here is, which is that Bitcoin miners like Riot are creating lots of jobs, often in rural communities, revitalizing areas where, for example, you know, in Rockdale, it was abandoned by Alcoa um, and we're helping revitalize this rural community. Um, so, you know, that has a number of different impacts. One, uh, just creating jobs directly and indirectly in those communities uh, Two, providing sales tax revenue uh, to those uh, municipalities, um, to those local governments. Uh, the, the other part of it though, is also that, um, you know, we want to help build a Bitcoin economy. Uh, ultimately the, um, my view and I think the company in general's view is that, uh, Bitcoin is the future of money and payments. And so um, we want to help accelerate that future and also give that opportunity to as many folks as possible 
um, whether it's in the form of education, um, but also just kind of the hands-on um, practical use of helping people set up a Bitcoin wallet uh, and understanding what the value is of doing that and what the value is of saving money. Uh, this is something that has largely been forgotten. Um, people have, uh, because of inflation, people have gotten into this habit of living paycheck to paycheck. And so um, hel helping uh, break that habit and learning the value of uh, saving Bitcoin, I think, is, is an important part of uh, our presence in these communities. Switch gears with me really quickly. Talk to us about the recent trend in blocks, uh, block space and the phenomenon of ordinals coming into Bitcoin. I, I've listened to your recent interview, so I don't want to rehash everything, but if you could give our audience your brief take on ordinals and what, what sort of danger or not they, pre it, they present for Bitcoin. Yeah. So, um, I guess we should, for, for those who have not heard that interview with Preston, we should still describe what, what we're talking about Please. here. Um, so Ordinals is a system for essentially um, arbitrarily labeling different Satoshis uh, on kind of a, a social convention layer. Um, and there's an infinite number of different ways that you could do this. Uh, the inventor of ordinals, ha Casey, created his own methodology for doing this, but um, there's any number of different ways you could do it. And uh, basically, the idea is that by running an ordinals client uh, that is connected to your Bitcoin node and is consuming data from the Bitcoin node, um, you're able to... Um, create a what I would call kind of a, a virtual uh, ledger on top of Bitcoin's real ledger um, and uh, then take that virtual ledger and attach different uh, pieces of metadata or actual data to it. Uh, and that's where we then get into inscriptions, which are uh, basically adding data inside of Bitcoin transactions um, that are pointing to specific ordinals on this uh, virtual layer. Um, so I think the part of the controversy has been about the legitimacy of a virtual layer. Um, and I would contrast a virtual layer. To, it's good that we're on uh, you know, a podcast about Bitcoin layers um, because... Lightning, people and people equate ordinals to lightning. And I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding here, which is that um, ordinals have no way of falling back on chain. Lightning channels are Bitcoin transactions where uh, the they can always fall back on chain. And the full meaning of those Bitcoin transactions can be enforced by Bitcoin on the base layer, meaning that Bitcoin, or sorry, Lightning's game theory relies on a combination of multi-sig and time locks. These smart contract 
capabilities are first class Bitcoin primitives that are fully enforced on the first on, on layer one. Uh, that's not the case with ordinals in the sense that the metadata or the data that is stored inside of uh, these taproot inputs that are describing what um, is being attached to the ordinal numeric system in the form of inscriptions, none of that, none of the semantics there are actually verified by the base layer, nor can they be. Um, they're always, they always can only be verified by the ordinal's client. Uh, and so there's no ability to fall back on chain per se. Um, so you're always just, uh, and so that's where I think that there's a, an issue of how this is being sold to people, where uh, if the marketing around it is that um, ordinals and inscriptions are settling on Bitcoin, it's an abusive language because uh, all that is settling on Bitcoin is Satoshi's, right? It's just Bitcoin. Um, the only place that ordinals and inscriptions are settling per se is in the ordinals client that you could choose to run or not, and that you could choose to modify or not. And there's not, uh, you know, it's just purely social convention of what the consensus is for ordinals. Um, now, somebody can come back and say, hey, look, that's true for Bitcoin as well, that uh, Bitcoin is purely social consensus uh, as well. And that's true. I'm just saying that they are different consensus, right? So there's the Bitcoin consensus and then there's the ordinals consensus. And um, they they don't actually uh, overlap uh, in any meaningful sense. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, that's... Yeah, that, then we get into semantics of what it means, what settlement means. But I don't think it's really semantics. I, I, th I think that it's pretty clear uh, that, you know, this is um, I, and the metaphor I use, which I think is really apt, is that you might call the Bitcoin consensus astronomy and physics and the ordinals consensus astrology. Right. Of OK, you know, we're, we're talking about the same thing, which is the moons and the stars. But in terms of the semantic meaning of these things, we're talking about radically different uh, areas of thought and of methodology, right? So that's where the there's really no overlap. We'll stick to the math-based uh, sciences uh, with Bitcoin and astronomy and physics. And, you know, but it's, it's, it's not to say that there isn't a market for this, right? Obviously, there's lots of people... Arguably, there are more people interested in astrology than there are people interested in astronomy, right? Um, just looking at it empirically, which is fine. I'm not saying that uh, one is more legitimate than the other or making a value judgment. Um, but just in terms of helping us understand these phenomena, I think that's that's the appropriate analogy here. Yes, it's when I come across people that uh, are fundamentally rejecting Bitcoin, I just assume that they must not be into math. Um, Pierre, why don't you talk to us a little bit about, you mentioned social consensus and the mass psychology that goes into Bitcoin bull and bear markets and that whole volatility cycle. But I've come to describe Bitcoin as a cultural phenomenon. And I think that you would agree there, 
give us your thoughts. How is Bitcoin to you a cultural phenomenon? And what does that, what does that idea mean to you? Yeah, so um, that idea to me means uh, two things. One is there's the Gartner hype cycle. Um, and so this hype cycle is kind of the traditional uh, mania, disillusion, and then uh, plateau of productivity uh, cycle that, that we see people post. And, you know, they, they put different technologies at different places on the cycle. Um, and the Bitcoin has what's unique about it is that it's fractal. And so it goes through this hype cycle or has gone through this hype cycle several times now. Um, and it raises the question of why does it go through, why doesn't it just go through the cycle once, right? And then reach the plateau or the ceiling of adoption that it should have. Um, and I think that actually has to do with the fact that Bitcoin is not just a technology, it's also a financial asset, right? That it's a monetary asset, um, which means that there are local ceilings to how quickly Bitcoin can appreciate in value. <laughs> um, and so uh, you uh, inevitably attract a lot of sellers uh, when it goes parabolic. Uh, and the, that actually forces them uh, technology adoption uh, to crash, um, which is, uh, you know, kind of uh, it that that's not the case with technologies that don't have a monetary asset attached to them. Right. Like um, uh, but in any case, to me, the, the cultural part, that's you know, that's one thing. But the second part to the cultural uh, element of Bitcoin is just how much there is to understand about Bitcoin. Um, and I'm learning something new about Bitcoin almost every day as well. So there's, uh, you know, I haven't reached kind of the, the bottom of the rabbit hole uh, th uh, that is Bitcoin. Um, but that in order to appreciate why Bitcoin, why it even makes sense to hold any material amount of Bitcoin, um, you have to, break through a lot of cognitive biases that have, that build up from just existing in the fiat system, right? And we, we've all grew up in this environment that was dominated by inflationary currencies, even if it's 2% inflation, right? It's still an inflationary currency that have ingrained certain behaviors and certain um, predispositions and narratives in our minds about money. And then we have to break those in order to understand Bitcoin. Uh, and that, I think, is what makes Bitcoin a cultural phenomenon on top of being a technology and a monetary asset. And it's also a global phenomenon. And I know that you travel all over the world and you speak to people all over the world that are Bitcoin users, uh, people working at Bitcoin com uh, companies and are executing on Bitcoin use cases talk to us. We have a very global approach to covering Bitcoin here at the Bitcoin layer. Tell us where in the world you are excited about Bitcoin adoption. Um, and if you could maybe skip over El Salvador, which has gotten a lot of the attention over the last couple of years, we all know that it is legal tender there and that there is 
um, there is both success and some uh, struggle to get their to get adoption there. But go elsewhere and tell us where else in the world you are excited about Bitcoin adoption, and where do you see some? Uh, what are some things to watch for? Yeah, so uh, I think it was Jack Dorsey who coined the phrase that Bitcoin is the native internet money, and I, I think that's just going to continue to be the case. So. While there are pockets of geographic adoption, I think at the end of the day, the, the biggest geography of adoption is digital. It's on the Internet. It's not uh, in the real world, um, which is, you know, challenging for the perspective that a lot of people have of money, which is that it's what you buy things with at the grocery store. Right. And if if one's conception of money is limited to that. Um, then Bitcoin, from that perspective, is just an abject failure, right? There's just very few places uh, that you can uh, use Bitcoin at to as a point of sale. Um, and so combining this idea that Bitcoin, first and foremost, is the money of the internet, and second of all, um, that the purpose of money is not just to spend it, but it's also to hold it and save it. Um, that, that I think is, is challenging for folks. Um, and, you know, I would add a third point here, which has to do, and I worked at, at Kraken as a product manager before joining uh, Riot. Um, we have this cognitive bias that m in order to qualify as money, and a monetary asset has to be exchanged for goods and services directly. It seems inappropriate to have an intermediary currency or what Paul Krugman called a vehicle currency, where you hop from Bitcoin into dollars and then into goods and services. Uh, somehow that that creates a disqualification for Bitcoin being a monetary asset of, oh, well, it doesn't count because you have to convert momentarily into dollars in order to use dollars as this utility payments token for, you know, Visa, MasterCard, ACH, wire transfer, right? Um, and I just think that's false. I think that um, it's, it's, it's totally fine to have vehicle currencies uh, that translate from whatever monetary asset you're holding, uh, medium to long term, into your local currency. And it's the same as when you go travel abroad to Europe. You know, you might have uh, a Visa card that is connected to your dollar bank account that you swipe in Europe that automatically converts the dollars into euros to pay the merchant. And it's just you're using euros as a vehicle currency and, you know, for that split second. Um, and that I, you know, that's where it's like there are products out there that allow you to hold Bitcoin and then you can use a traditional uh, card in order to convert those Bitcoin into your local currency. And that somehow is seen as not uh, being adoption. Uh, but I, I think that's just a bias that people have. I think that that qualifies as adoption just as much as people using Lightning to spend uh, their Bitcoin. Now, we could then get into, well, what are the differences then? To me, the difference is uh, really about cost. Uh, they, they, you do have to pay a conversion cost to convert into a local vehicle currency to spend. Um, and so 
if everyone is using Bitcoin, then we get rid of that conversion cost. Uh, and to get everyone to a place where they're using Bitcoin on the merchant side, that's going to require a desire for them to hold Bitcoin. Right. And so then they would give you the option of, do you want to pay with lightning so that um, I don't have to go through the trouble of acquiring Bitcoin and you don't have to go through the trouble of disposing of your Bitcoin to get the local currency. Um, and uh, that's when uh, we would see things flip into a Bitcoin circular, circular economy. Talk to us now about what you see on the horizon for the Bitcoin market. You have seen the cycle. You have seen halvings and their effect on the market through multiple cycles now. So give our audience some of whom this is their first bear market, Pierre, and some who it's their second or third. Give us this the your sense just based off your experience in Bitcoin. How do you feel about this current bear market and where we are? Yeah, so um the let's start with the the bull market. I think the bull market was um quite uh extraordinary um but uh ultimately I think that the well Okay, let's rewind to the inflation narrative, right? People will say, oh, Bitcoin's an inflation hedge because it's limited in quantity. And I think that that caused a lot of issues in terms of uh, then having to be walked back uh, because people equate the word inflation with consumer price inflation. Um, when really uh, there's consumer price inflation and then there's money supply inflation, right? An increase in the quantity of money. Um, and I think Bitcoin's much more closely correlated with money supply inflation than it is uh, with consumer price inflation. One. Second, even though Bitcoin's more correlated with money supply inflation, it's not 100% correlation either. Uh, and so we have to be really cautious about uh, trying to create a kind of a mechanistic model between those those two. Um, so what I think what what happened in the bull market or the previous bull market is that we had one of these waves of adoption of Bitcoin and that it actually got cut short. And we didn't have a blow off top because we started seeing consumer price inflation which might seem counterintuitive, right? We would think, oh, well, wouldn't that add fuel to the fire of Bitcoin? Um, but we have to always be thinking about the rational expectations piece of the uh, monetary model as well, which is that if you have consumer price inflation, what you ought to expect would then be monetary tightening from the Federal Reserve because their approach all else equal is to raise interest rates and to contract monetary conditions when consumer price inflation starts going up in order to achieve their dual mandate. Um, and the Fed was, if we look at the Taylor rule, the Fed was delayed in increasing interest rates um, by this debate over whether inflation was transitory and inflation was caused by supply chain versus inflation being a monetary phenomenon. Now, ultimately, they did uh, raise interest rates and start tightening. But if we look at 
the when the Taylor rule suggested that tightening should happen and when Larry Summers started warning about inflation, uh, that's really when Bitcoin's uh, bull market peaked and started going into the double top and the reversal uh, and the correction down to, you know, where we were at, uh, you know, at the end of 2022. So um, from here going forward, uh, I think that there's two phenomena to, to look at. One, as you mentioned, the halving. So next year, there's going to be a halving. Um, I don't know. There, There's an argument that halvings have diminish, diminishing marginal returns uh, because they are smaller and smaller relative to the outstanding above ground supply of Bitcoin uh, to analogize to mining. Um, and also that there's a question of has the Fed finished this tightening cycle or is there more room for this tightening cycle to go? I mean, I've, I've heard people say that in order to really uh, be following the Taylor rule, interest rates should be at 10% uh, or, you know, the Fed funds rate should be at 10% today, uh, which, you know, is, is we're not there yet. <laughs> um, and then I've also heard people say th that the current tightening is, is unsustainable and that um, when we look at the mortgage market and the where this is heading in the real estate and that you know we're, we're we're heading for a financial crisis um, so I think there's still a very wide range of views on where monetary policy is going to go from here um, and and they if if we think about kind of the chess the 3d chess game of well, if there's a financial crisis, then they'll have to bail out the financial system again and they'll have to print lots of dollars again and Bitcoin price will go up. But before Bitcoin price goes up, it'll go down because of tightening liquidity in a financial crisis. Right. So there's lots of different um, paths that the Bitcoin price could take, which I think reinforces what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast. Bitcoin price is going to be volatile and any kind of... Um, accumulation strategy or Bitcoin mining strategy has to take that into account. And you have to build a balance sheet that's resilient to that, right? And that's going to depend on your personal financial situation and your corporate financial situation, you know, depending on the context. Um, and you have to uh, model out your cash flow. You have to make sure your balance sheet, you're holding enough dollars on your balance sheet in addition to holding enough Bitcoin so that you're not put into a position of forced liquidation, right? Um, so the the um, I, I still have a wide range for the Bitcoin price, but when I look at where we are in the cycle, my bias is towards bullishness uh, because I do think that we seem to have found a bottom uh, in the 17k area, uh, and that um, when we one one chart I, I like to to look at is the days since the having, because you get to see kind of the price mania after the having, uh, that Gartner hype cycle, the disillusionment, um, and at the end of the day, humans are humans and humans operate within time, and so the number of days after the having I think is a good way of anchoring where the human psychology is, um, and I think that the um, kind of the negative psychology has exhausted itself 
in the bear market. And now we're in a more neutral area uh, where the bias is towards the upside because of Bitcoin's fundamentals that are going to continue to drive adoption of, hey, it's permissionless, it's digital, it's 24-7, it's scarce. Um, and then there's no, as far as I can tell, no more forced sellers uh, on, on the other side of the market. Bias to bullishness. We agree with you, Pierre. Pierre Richard, VP of Research at Riot Platforms, a fully integrated Bitcoin miner. Pierre, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin layer. Please tell our audience where they can find you online. Yeah, find me uh, at Bitcoin Pierre on Twitter uh, and on Noster as well, uh, which I've been enjoying a lot. Um, and uh, feel free to, to reach out. My DMs are open. Uh, you can, of course, also find me on LinkedIn, uh, Pierre Rochard. Hopefully there are no impersonators, but uh, yeah, uh, find mutual connections, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Pierre Rochard, thank you so much again. Mm -hmm.